Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We do a special podcast taping of the program here at the Commonwealth Club, and generally it's on Thursday afternoons, but this week it is... I'm so excited, the beginning of lots and lots of good fall programming. And I do this show with John Zipper, my co-host, who has his own show here. If you've been to the club, we speak political roundtable talk, and he is what I call the boss of this program. He's the <laughs> vice president of media here at the It has your name club. on the program. <laughs> You're the boss. Well, welcome to the show. We have a great guest today. She's the director of Red Roll Red. Um, lots of ours. Roll Red Roll. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. Um, which is streaming now on Netflix. And the documentary takes us back to an incident, uh, a sexual assault case that happened in 2012 in a town called Steubenville, um, Ohio, and involves two-star high school football players. So let's welcome Nancy Schwartzman to the program. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Um, just to, you know, get us warmed up, let's, uh, let's talk about how you got involved in the film. I know this is your first feature film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me on the show. It's really exciting to be here. Um, this is my first feature film, but I've made two short films prior. And the work that was most interesting to me um, and still is, is really this intersection of um, sexual empowerment and gender-based violence, youth culture, and technology. And like my first two films sort of played with all of that stuff, whether it was intimacy mitigated through technology or um, investigating the line of consent, you know. So so when this story broke, it was sort of pieces of all of that because technology and social media really fueled the spread of this case. In some ways, this is the first rape case to go viral. Um, it hit in 2012, right when everyone had social media and Anonymous was still hacking for good. And um, so that happened. Um, but another thing really pulled me to the story, it was um, – Alex um, Alex Goddard, who's the crime blogger, who really uncovered all the evidence. And it wasn't just criminal evidence. It was also cultural evidence. It was sort of, we're looking at a bigger picture. We're looking at rape culture when we look at this story, because we can pull back and see the language being used, how there just seemed to be this lack of accountability. Um, and what felt important also was that this was an opportunity to um, really look at the behavior and look at perpetrators and bystanders. Um, because so often rape stories are kind of burdened, the victim is burdened to share her story and give her name and expose herself. And we don't really learn about the culture that enables rape when we scrutinize a victim. So you're very much not focusing on the victim in this case. Mm-hmm. And yep. is that also by any of her desire or was that just you wanted to focus again on the culture instead? Yeah. I mean, from the get-go, I, I said, because my first film was about um, actually my own assault and I looked at, I just, you know, interrogated the entire experience and ended the film by interviewing the man who assaulted me. So really at the conclusion, it was like, I'm, there's no answer that the world is going to give me yeah. or my own behavior is going to give me. Like I need to go to the person who did it. So that's always been my ethos. So with this project, it was like from the beginning, we're flipping this narrative and we're looking at the, the boys and the adults who enable it and the bystanders. Um, Jane Doe, there, there are actually several Jane Doe's in this film, um, but the primary um, Jane Doe um, has always wanted to remain um, anonymous, which yeah. is 
you know, absolutely sure. what we yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the documentary, the you know, it 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 makes you feel as if you were actually there. There's so much documentation of the crime in itself, and then, as you said, the you know the the cultural toxicity around you know assault and rape culture. Um, Social media has played uh, is such an important part of our lives now, but played a really big role in this case, particularly. How how were you able? I mean, I I would think that it was very easy for you because there were some like four hundred thousand proofs out there through text messages, visuals, and then uh, you mentioned anonymous doing a lot of the hacking. So videos were circulated. Was it that easy to just kind of all piece it together and and put it into the documentary? Um, Well, initially, the social media that was public, um, anyone could look at. So this was, again, early days. So suddenly everyone's on Twitter. Um, Teenagers in Alabama, teenagers in Ohio. It's not just, you know, Jack out here, right, in San Francisco. So that those tweets were in the ether and it was also sort of the rise of blogging. Blogging was like reaching its sort of peak. So Alex was blogging about it. A few other people were blogging and sort of piecing together timelines, but all of that was publicly available. There was a whole archive that the attorney general's office got from the police mm-hmm. that was not available. And that was down like several phones, all of the content downloaded, time-stamped text messages, all the imagery. That took years for me to get, and and that's in the film. Um, That's the kind of thing you file a Freedom of Information Act to obtain. So we could have told the social media story, um, absolutely, and you can hear the voices of some of the kids and the, the young men through the tweets, but I wanted to also really compare their texting language to each other, which is like, oh, crap. They're sort of backpedaling with each other. They're either bragging or trying to cover themselves. And then also the language in the police interviews where they're singing a very different song in, in those interviews. So it, it really was interesting watching the, yeah, I've never seen actual police interviews. I've just seen TV shows. Before we get too far into this, yeah. why don't we set the stage for people who don't know the story of the Steubenville attack? So could you sure. do so? Um, sure. So um, at a high school preseason football team, um, Steubenville is in eastern Ohio. It's a Rust Belt city, about 20,000 population. Um, steel mills have pretty much been shuttered. They're a tiny town, but they have one of the top football teams in the state. They really have a strong team. They're not Columbus. They're not Cleveland. They're just a little place. So they have an amazing program, good coaching, tons of money poured into this program. So at a preseason football team, uh, football game in August, a young woman is assaulted. Um, she's from a neighboring school across the river. She doesn't really know anyone in this school. Um, she's assaulted by a boy that she thought she was kind of dating. Um, She's taken to three parties. There are several witnesses. There's 30 witnesses at the big party. There's about 15 witnesses at the second party when she's incapacitated at that point. And then there are several witnesses actually at the third party where she's assaulted. So um, the boys, the young men were caught pretty shortly afterwards. Um and the town, you know, was still trying to tamp it down and keep it quiet and say it's being exaggerated. Um, the blogger uncovered all of this Twitter and these tweets and the way the young men were talking about her. Um, the police sort of ignored the social media. Um, she posted about it. One of the boys' family sued her 
to try to shut down her blog. Um, Anonymous took up wind of the story, um, found some deleted video that was atrocious. Um, and it wasn't graphic. It was more laughter and jokes, and it was so horrifying. But because it wasn't graphic, it was able to go viral. So it was on every news station because Anonymous tweeted it out to millions of people. Um, and the floodgates broke. And so there were riot, um, rallies in the town. Um, there were convictions. Rallies for or, or against whom? Right. Good point. Um, there were rallies in support of Jane Doe okay. um, in the town. And they were inspired by Anonymous. Anonymous, Sky in a Mask, hackers group said, you know, everyone gather at the courthouse stairs. We need justice. And um, at first, there were several. The first couple were a little... Just guys shouting, we want justice. And then something changed and women started speaking. And it was the first time so many of these women had ever shared their stories, legacy upon legacy of sexual violence in that community. Um, and they were emboldened by the anonymity of a mass. So that's a really kind of powerful moment in the film. And that's why I say there are multiple Jane Doe's in this film. Yeah. Um, so justice is served. I say that in quotes, but you know, the football coach is still coaching. Um, nothing's really changed in the town. So it's really like a look at the reckoning of how it affected everyone. Yeah. So let's get into that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think the word that comes to my mind after seeing the film twice, um, brazen, like how, how brazen, you know, not just the, the, the kids involved were, but the adults who also were trying to cover up and defend uh, the teenagers and the crime in itself and and the even the system the the justice system in my opinion who fails the victim with such a lenient sentence but that's also a whole new different conversation um the big question you know it, it it's funny how the media paints it as the town is split into half those who support Jane Doe and then those who are you know, supportive of the football players and they're saying these are good kids, don't ruin their lives. Uh, but yet, like, everybody had a different definition of what rape is. And I'm surprised, and I think many of us are, um, you know, who are good people. Like, why is that even a question? We should know what rape is. Yeah, I mean, I think this all ties to um, a really dangerous lack of sex education, in our schools for young people starting in elementary to middle to high school. Um, uh, that's evidence-based, that's science-based, that's also empowered consent-based. Um, so you have a lot of kids who are not taught this or they're on purpose kept in the dark. Um, we all know if you're not taught at home or in school, and I'd much rather be taught in school about sex than at home. We can all like agree. Those are horrendous conversations to have with our parents. Um, and I feel like there is science proving they don't, it doesn't really stick when your parents talk to you about sex. Um, you know, kids are getting it from other places. They're getting it from their peers or they're getting it online. And, um, it's not about, uh, humanity and other people's humanity. So there was a real callousness that was shown in the teens that shocked the parents in the town. And there, there's a digital divide also, right? They don't know, well, I don't know what's going on on Twitter. I don't even know what Twitter is, right? So there's that divide. Parents are not really looking at the content their kids are looking at. So there's just this big gulf and there's no actual positive, useful information. Um, so I think that's really the crux of the problem, not just in Steubenville, pretty much everywhere. The other thing that was really clear um, 
was how rigid the gender roles are in that town. Um, I didn't see any boys with long hair. I didn't see any girls with short hair. I didn't see any goth kids. I mean, it's just so rigid. You're a football player, you're in the band, or you're a cheerleader. Like, that's it. And I'm sure kids change when they leave. But um, the other piece also is there's really a lack of women in leadership in the town. So um, I sort of forget what your question was. It was just centered around, you know, the fact that – it really exposed you know, a lot of people not really understanding rape. And then when right. you get a case like this that impacts a small community or a town, it's very clear, you know, where mm-hmm. you know the ignorance lies. Yep. So, for example, I mean, the police officer has mm-hmm. to uh, educate the coach. And it's a scene in the documentary on what rape is according to the law. Mm-hmm. And you hear the coach being like, well, you know, I asked the students. They said that, that there was – I mean, it's a more – derogatory term that he used in the the interview but basically it's like it was there penetration was there intercourse if there wasn't then it's not rape or you know and then along those lines because it's so layered you have you have folks who were i think it was the radio jockey and Mm. i'm all i want to ask you who that radio jockey is because you use his voice is it joe rogan no it's not i'll ask later yeah um but who says like, well, it, it starts this conversation of, you know, if the girl's drunk and at some point um, she's consented to going to hang out with these guys, then that's that's consent. Mm-hmm. Or even the attorney who was representing uh, the, Malik Richmond, um, one of the two high school students who committed this crime in saying that, well, you know, at, at some point she gave him the cell phone. So that's consent. That's a form of consent. So there could be no, you know, uh, at, at basically justifying the actions. So that's right. kind of where I'm going with mm-hmm. this is that I think that uh, that all um, contributes to rape culture. Yeah. I mean, just so everyone knows, you know, the attorney representing Malik with the argument that giving someone access to your phone is a form of consent, that defense didn't work for him. Okay. Right. <laughs> Malik was adjudicated guilty. So it's like that is possibly the worst defense I've ever heard and it didn't didn't fly in court. So so that's good. Yeah, I think there's a generational gap in understanding what rape is. Um, a lot of the older men were like, well, it wasn't that bad. And it's kind of like, well, how bad does it need to be? Do you need to see evidence of physical violence? Um, also, this is not for you to decide if it's bad or not. We have a law. And I think that, right, with the, the police officer defining, well, consent, if someone is drunk or incapacitated, she cannot consent. So that's where it stops, right? And it's like, well, you know, so it's all this allowing of the behavior to go on. Um, there's a shopkeeper who also says, look, it's not good what happened. But in my day, you know, you were a bad boy. You know, now they want to put you in jail. Hmm. I, I was going to bring that up because he, he was like, well, you know, back in my day, uh, you know, maybe you were suspended or something like that. Or, you know, you got it written up or something. And now you go to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a large part of this seems to be the by I don't mean the literal bystanders, but I mean the public bystanders mm-hmm. of this. Their automatic identification with the boys yeah, and not the victim. Course. And that yep. mm-hmm. that seems bizarre, mm-hmm. at least to me. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous and it's painful and it's just not, as Alex, our blogger in the film says, I lived in Steubenville and it's not a very woman-friendly environment. If it's not safe for kids to be visibly different or queer kids to be out, you know it's not going to be 
safe or friendly to women. Again, I think it really does go back to those gender roles where boys will be boys. So let them be boys. And if anything happens, if they get in trouble, it's the girl's fault. I mean, I heard that a lot from older men. Well, those girls get the boys in trouble. I mean, that's like, yeah, and it's no different and really fundamentally than what you see in, you know, some countries where, you know, a woman, uh, is raped and the woman is punished severely with prison or death and the men mm-hmm. yeah. maybe they get yelled at you know i mean it, it really is a deep-seated i mean it's it, it's so it, it it's it's such an understatement to say it's, it's it's deep-seated sexism but i mean that that really just shows how it's very broad very cross-cultural mm-hmm. And very dangerous, especially uh, to what we're talking about right now, because mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to hit on that, how ingrained, mm-hmm. you know, rape culture is in our society. And uh, I mean, I was telling Nancy right before this program, we were talking about uh, here in California, the Brock Turner case mm-hmm. and hearing the and, arguments and, and for, come if out. If you would, for the people who yeah. are listening outside. Brock of Turner case uh, it was a case out of Stanford University and Brock Turner was found guilty in assaulting a woman who... Um, was incapacitated as well, uh, and and luckily, luckily was stopped by two students who, you know, witnessed this, mm-hmm. um, and it went on. We very lenient mm-hmm. in terms of the punishment for Brock Turner. He's now back at home with his parents, and he's working. And um, Jane Doe has come forward, and she's also got a book out this fall. But the judge. Judge Persky, who um, ruled on that case, has been recalled for the leniency. Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting at is that, you know, before we had more voices to the table who are making, you know, um, who, are, who are protesting this. Think about even getting to the court systems. And if they're not ruling or giving harsh punishments, I mean, th- this is why I think it just keeps happening. So yeah. going back to the... Steubenville case, I want to talk about, like, even with social media and there's documentation, like, there, it's not even like it's he said, she said, and we're doing investigations. I mean, you know, we're seeing this with our eyes. This is how you can't even deny that you're moving this woman's body who's not even awake from point A to point B to point C without her consent and doing these things. These are this is all proof. Even having that, mm-hmm. there's this public you know, discourse and conversation where it's like the victim's not the victim, the victim here are the football players. Yeah. This is horrible. Yeah. I mean, that's classic victim blaming. And I've heard that a lot from the response to the film from young men who've watched it, who said, wow, I really learned a lot about victim blaming. We're so entrenched. I think rape culture and victim blaming are two sides of the same coin where it's like, what did she do? you know, what was she doing? Why is it her fault? And I think it's because our premise, which is what I want to change with this film, is that rape is inevitable. That's our starting point. Well, rape's inevitable. So you better girls figure out all the ways to dress appropriately and protect yourself because it's going to happen. So if it does happen, it's your fault for letting it happen. So there's an inevitability like, oh, if you hang out with the football players, well, you know what happens. And it's, it's nuts that we've all accepted that. So I think with this film, what I wanted it to do is really jar you and say, why are we all acting like we have to live like this? Mm -hmm. We actually don't. Most people objectively would say rape is terrible. 
And I know that from the people in town, even if they're voicing their truths around being confused about it, they will say, no, rape is, wait a minute, no, rape is bad. Um, So we have to stop expecting our boys that they're going to do this and say, absolutely not. So I just want to point out that in Brock Turner, the two young men who interrupted it were Swedish. And Sweden has incredible sex education. They have incredible education around consent and bystander intervention. And we can teach that to people. Like, it can be hard to stand up and be the only voice of reason in your group of friends. And we have one of those guys in the film, Sean, he stands up. Because we all have a moral compass. And and most kids know this is not, this isn't right. Whether or not you're a hyper-feminist or not, If there's accountability, like you're going to get in trouble, then you're going to say, whoa, (laughs) I don't want you getting kicked off the team, so stop it. So in Steubenville, no one got kicked off the team because they did it months before and got away with it. So if there's punishment and there's clarity around definitions and there's education about, okay, how would you interrupt this situation? Let's let's do some role playing. And those are basic courses. You, You schools can have them. So the Swedish boys who interrupted were educated on it. I don't know that American young men would do it, frankly. I, I just don't. I mean, some some do and some don't, but I think we're not teaching young people what our kind of civic and social duty is to each other. So there, those are seem to be the pieces that need changing for the bigger picture to change. I actually would question your comment that we all have moral compass. I wish we all had moral compasses. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think not to take this into a political arena, but I think we've seen how easily millions of people will do stuff or support stuff that you would have thought were unthinkable five, 10 years ago. Um, And so it seems to me we've got the argument could be made. We've got, you know, failure of parents of churches and other religious organizations, certainly of the schools, certainly of the media, both entertainment and news. I mean, when you talk about the culture of this, Mm -hmm. I mean, that culture is all those things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A very huge thing to take on in a movie. You know, I, that, do, I, do I succeed? If, if you haven't seen this, I, I definitely would, would recommend it. It's a very powerful uh, movie. Can, can I, and this mm-hmm. is to get made, made more on the movie side yeah. of it. Um, we know why you then wanted to pursue it in this and looking at it in this particular way. When you're looking for funders and, and backers and distributors and such, how did you get them involved? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it was... It was my past work, um, uh, making films that deal with gender-based violence. I'm also an app developer and I made a tool under Vice President Biden's initiative, um, as a violence prevention app. So I was bringing sort of a kind of a know-how of like technology and also really how to reach audiences in this space. My first film was about consent and I got zero funding for that. It was 10 years ago. And people would say to me, like, well, I don't know if your film has an audience. <laughs> like, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> just you wait. Um, you know, so it was sort of knowing being in touch with young people yeah. and saying, oh, no, they're crowding me at college campuses when I show 10 minutes of this film. We are on the brink of a huge outpouring of stories. So I, you know, with the fundraising, it was really about I want to look at a town and how an entire community can be impacted. Um, And I want to frame it around perpetrators and bystanders because that's where I feel like our work needs to focus in the anti-violence movement. So um, I think that was, you know, what got uh, my exec producers and foundations on board. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, uh, well, man, there's so many questions that I wanted to ask. Right? We have about 10 minutes between um, John, myself, and Nancy, and then the audience can ask questions. And so John will roam around with a mic. So be thinking about a question for Nancy if you have one. Um, you know, you mentioned leadership and more women in leadership. Maybe that will drive a cultural shift and really make some impact, you know, against mm. rape culture. I thought about that comment and I, you know, I, I wonder, could that actually happen, for example, in the NFL? Mm. And we're hearing more sexual assault mm. cases out of the NFL right now. Right. And, and can, I, can I interrupt? Yeah, go ahead. So I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which <laughs> is a football city. <laughs> um, and back in the 1980s when their team was awful, and I've never been a football fan, but if you live in a city like that, you know everything that's going on. One of their stars was multiple times accused and charged with uh, uh, assault. I don't recall if it was rape or whatever the definitions they're using, but it was stuff that it was just like, well, first of all, I, my friends and I in high school, we weren't sitting around saying this is great. We were like, this guy's scum. Mm. And yet, of course – the team stood by him and he's now in the green bay packer hall of fame and such like that so i don't know why i bring this up other than to make it about me (laughs) (laughs) but in in the nfl oh dear god i mean it wasn't that long ago that the 49ers had i think the most team members who had been arrested or accused of things of any team in the country i'm just saying if we address this straight on in spaces in which you know sexual assault uh, Mm -hmm. cases are high um, let's just face it. So the NFL is one of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you know, you have men talking about sexual assault cases and, and handling these investigations. Mm. Um, and they're all men. Mm-hmm. And I just can't imagine that a room full of men talking about sexual assault cases would fully understand the yeah. uh, entire scope of what's going on. So if you, if we were really going to make an impact, so yeah. I'm trying to get us to look at the solutions. Cause yeah. I know I love Nancy's comment back to me. This is not a doom and gloom conversation. We're going to smash the Patriot together (laughs) you know what do we how do we get there yeah i mean i just want to clarify that um not all women are going to be remotely useful we have many uh handmaidens of the patriarchy um we can see them all throughout the administration um you know so feminist and i need feminist male allies so number one we're trying to build a ton of feminist male allies with this film so i try to partner with men We, we partner with um, trauma-informed coaching, feminist coaching initiatives. I mean, there's a lot of youth athletics programs that are trying to be more mindful and hopefully more positive and really instill leadership values in their young athletes. Like the NFL feels so late and far. There's so much money on the table. There's so much money on the table. I think that's really what's driving all of their decision making. Um, NCAA needs mm. some movement. That's the college level. They are dragging their feet because there's a lot of money there too. Um, so again, just from the hope perspective, if we can do this in middle schools and high schools, um, then we have a chance because coaches actually spend two hours a day with their players, whereas a teacher spends 45 minutes with their with their students. So coaches have immense influence. So if we can get them on board, um, because last time I checked, raping doesn't improve your football 
game. It's like, I don't know why we're like defending that. It's like, it actually doesn't help you play better. So you want to weed it off your team. You want to create a scenario where the coach in this film says, I told them if you're drinking, you're off this team. And you're like, okay, please finish the sentence. Just, just extend that sentence. And we're in, everyone's in better shape. So it's not even that much work that needs to be done with young people. Like here are the rules. Here's the definition. And it doesn't make you a better player. So cut it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the MVP is the player who also exhibits humanity and values. And I know it's dark times, but there are a lot of those young men out there because they, they come to me after screenings and they find me online. So we're really trying to empower those groups because the feminist movement is strong. And here we are. And like the guys need to get organized. I also created the film to sort of be a baton and be like, here you go. Mm-hmm. Please now take this into your communities. Yeah. To add to that, I mean, so some of the adults who um, did get punished uh, mm-hmm. or there was a superintendent. I, I mean, I think one person actually was indicted and then maybe the other two uh, who were in the school system, they took a plea or, or, or something where they quit. Um but those individuals who do the cover up. So if mm-hmm. you know that this is this is Steubenville. If you look at it from a yeah. really big um, macro, you know, perspective, you have big, huge sports stars like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the most beloved right. soccer players in the world, who also has a r- very recent and current sexual assault case against him. And this is resurfacing after he had already paid hush money. Um, to what I understand. And so what I'm trying to say is that if you start looking at the people who back these folks up and the money trail, those are the people who are doing a lot of the cover up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I guess my, the question to add to that, yes, add more, uh, you know, feminists and create, um, you know, an organization that supports those, the, that vision, what should we do about the folks who are also part of the crime who mm-hmm. are covering up? I think that they need more harsher punishments or lose their jobs or – Yeah. Right? Well, we need accountability. Yeah. When you look at um, you know, Harvey Weinstein and his entire network of people helping him be an enabled – known serial predator. I mean, it was just known. I went to a party last week in Los Angeles, a free the work party about putting more women and putting more people of color, giving them the opportunities to make the ad money and directing and all that stuff. And it was, it really felt revolutionary to happen in Los Angeles. And I thought, wow, like five, 10 years ago, this could have been the kind of party where Harvey Wine, you know, the known predators in the corner and everyone knows what he's doing. Like we were all living with all these open secrets, you know? So I think the more we tear down the open secrets, Bill Cosby, Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, every time I feel like, okay, the film had a peak and now it'll rest. It's like new scandal and a new, whether it's MIT or Hollywood. Um, So I guess it's about exposing, Mm -hmm. which think, God for journalists, right? They're doing it across the board bravely, um, no matter how many times they're trying to be silenced and all of their sources and survivors. Um, So I think it's just about exposing all those networks and seeing how they work and then figuring out, okay, well, how do we hold, you know, the lawyer accountable? How do we hold the person who brings the person in the room and make sure the door is locked accountable? It's like, we have to understand the matrix and network first 
and then we can, I think, start shifting it. I, the, going back to technology enabling a lot of stuff, I mean, technology also really fueled uh, and made a success out of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And perhaps uh, if you could comment, you mentioned some of these names. An interesting thing about this entire wave of, of cases and accusations of the Me Too movement is finally you were seeing powerful men lose their jobs, go on trial, you know, lose massive – their careers ending and such. Um, and I, I don't know if that would have happened before the swarm of people who can go after someone online and just stay at it and mm-hmm. say, no, this person's a predator. Mm-hmm. This person ruined these people's careers because they wouldn't sleep with him, all that kind of stuff. So optimistic, pessimistic, happy, sad about the role that this Absolutely. technology can play. I mean – yeah, well, people-powered technology, not yeah. like bot and foreign agent-powered technology. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Me Too, Time's Up, legal yeah. action, dogged journalism, powerful, brave survivors. I mean, it takes a lot of pieces. But uh, like when we gather together and speak and expose, things happen. We're done. I feel like we're the complacency that we that is shown in the film, you know, the sort of like, well, this is how it is. I guess everyone knows about Jeffrey Epstein. It's like, you know what? No way. We're done. We're done with all this. I think all of us have reached that point. So I guess a little positive about the technology piece. Well, and it has hit. We talked about money and and the NFL. I mean, NBC, for example, with its Matt Lauer issues and finding out all the people who knew about it and enabled it and covered it up over the years. Um, But when you're making a financial hit against those big companies Mm -hmm. for not just, oh, we have someone in our midst who's been bad, but we have someone in our midst who we helped. Mm-hmm. do their stuff um you know they kind of deserve some hits <laughs> taking it back to the subjects of the film um so the two kids the teenagers who did get punished uh, trent mays um who seemed to be the main perpetrator got i think two years and uh I thought, registered I thought he got one and the other one. got two. no he got two, two. Trent. Okay. Mm-hmm. and um and and Malik Richmond got I mean I think he served like ten months but but a year sentence, mm-hmm. and they were on the sexual uh, offenders registry for maybe a year, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually both names were both boys were able to remove their names. They both went on to college, um, played for a team. I mean I think one of them returned to the football team, like you mentioned. Do you think that you know yeah the that. The public got involved. Anonymous got involved. This case got uh, global attention. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that has changed them? I, I had read, uh, tried to read up on where they're at now. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, with the leniency of you know their their punishment, I, I don't think much much would change it. In fact, I think that there are fresh new allegations on one of the mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah, I mean, I think that what what's been proven that, you know, longer sentences don't necessarily shift culture or prevent sexual assault. So I think some people want to see justice serve. Like, I want these kids behind bars. And I think we need to shift our thinking around that. Lock them up and throw away the key is why so few people come forward and we actually so rarely see justice because you might love that person who committed the assault. He might be your classmate. He might be your son, right? So we have to, you know, solve the problem and not think it's going to get solved in a courtroom because that's so rare. Um, They were tried as as juveniles and um, those are actually long, two years for Trent Mays is actually a pretty long sentence in the juvenile system. Um, 
and there are allegations against Trent Mays, right? So Malik Richmond in the film breaks down into tears in the courtroom and it's really real. Mm-hmm. And he apologizes to Jane Doe and her family and the family forgave him. Mm-hmm. He's really showing remorse. This is a 16 year old who did a bad thing and is feeling it. Um, Trent Mays apologizes for getting caught. Um, it's pretty stark. Uh, so just to say that, you know, there was a lot of talk in town about forgiveness and how do we bring people in? We don't have the structure set up. I believe in restorative and transformational justice and victim offender mediation where there is like accounting from the victim's side. What do I need to feel like you guys are admitting what you did and you're sorry. And some offenders are good participants. I would suspect Malik would be a good one. And some are not like Trent. Trent is not someone you would do that process with because he showed zero remorse. Mm -hmm. And when they did follow-up studies with him in juvenile detention, he showed zero remorse. So I, you know, we can look at him as a serial predator um, and that is dangerous. And him not being on the registry enables him to be on a campus around young women. And that's dangerous. Um, Malik, I think probably learned his lesson and, um, you know, is living his life, which folks felt in town like that's okay. Like he cried, he apologized, he served. Now we can let him. And he's kept his head down and not done anything, right? So the other point I wanted to make in the film too is that there were several eyewitnesses. So I wanted to make them part of the story because where's their accountability? Mm -hmm. You know, if you take photos of a girl and you don't help her, why do we not know who you are? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why if you're making the video and uploading it, why is that not bad. They had to be eyewitnesses in the case, but I really wanted to show the kind of rings outward. We put all this focus on these two, but another night it could have been those three. We don't know, right? And so who's the group? We need to look at everything. It's like the stringent light, you know, and really understand like there's no bad necessarily one evil person. I think the kind of superhero narrative is there's this like super villain and everyone else is fine. It's like, Mm-hmm. You know, there's group behavior and the adults are not modeling for young people how to behave and what to do when you don't behave. So um, I don't particularly believe in longer sentences, mm-hmm. but I do feel like Trent Mays is someone who's offended a few times. Yeah. The students need to know about that. Um, and, and now thanks to the film, they do. But it was kept much quieter before this came out. Yeah. I think the question goes to show, I mean, just how much ignorance that we all have in terms of how, how does the, how, how do you, what's the punishment? Like, and I think I know, I mean, you know, state by state is different, Mm -hmm. but uh, even in the Brock Turner case, a lot of people felt that his punishment was too lenient. Um, Mm -hmm. um, But I love the point of, you know, being much more about restorative transformation is that's the only way in which we make some cultural changes. I think it's time for the audience to ask your questions. Uh, so if you've got a question for Nancy, we'll take them. Thank you for the film. You're welcome. Uh, so present in the audience today are some representatives from Equal Rights Advocates, which is a longstanding gender equity organization that does cutting-edge work in this area. And it's recently developed a program called End uh, Sexual Violence in Education, or SV, in which uh, – we provide uh, advice and representation to survivors of mm-hmm. gender violence. And you may be familiar with the um, Krakauer book, Missoula, uh-huh. that dealt with a similar incident at the University of Montana. Mm-hmm. And that book spends a lot of time going over the legal process mm-hmm. from the administrative college to the civil litigation. So I'm wondering, uh, your film 
had less emphasis on the mm-hmm. legal aspect, and I'm wondering what more you could tell us about the the trial. You know how the um, the uh, prosecution and defense counsel played it, uh, jury, uh, community members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that was actually a very conscious choice. I think because. Um, I come from a family of lawyers and I think our culture is like obsessed with how did it play out in court? And that's such a narrow, narrow window. There's a reality, there's repercussions, but in some ways it doesn't allow us to look at the cultural piece and the behavior and prevention. Um, so it was a judge. So there was no jury on uh, their juveniles. Um, the, um, the state came in 10 days after the arrests and took the case out of the hands of um, the police uh, because the town prosecutor recused herself, but she recused herself after 10 days, which is a pretty long time. Um, it turns out her son was tangentially involved in the incident in April, 10 days. Um, everyone in town says, oh, she did the right thing. She recused. And I'm like, 10 days Mm -hmm. is a long time. Um, So the state came in. So then it became um, the attorney general's work. And um, Trent Mays had a defense attorney. Malik Richmond had Walter Madison defense attorney. Um, And then the judge decided essentially on all the evidence that was present. Um, Text messages were read out loud, stuff like that. So I'm so glad you made this film and it's out there. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, what's the name of your first film, and is it available to watch anyplace? It is. It's called The Line, and um, you can watch it at the Media Education Foundation. It's a distributor, and they're s- streaming it. It's pre-DB. It's, uh, yeah, it's old school. <laughs> okay. Another question? Uh, hi. Um, a lot of the discussion was around sort of the criminal context. And as you said, so many of these things never even get there um, because the survivor doesn't want it to go that far or it's just what needs to be shown in a criminal context is so high. I'm wondering if in your interviews and conversations in the town and especially with the administration and the football program, uh, if there was any discussion about Title IX and the civil rights around equity in schools and that this is really an affirmative civil right to be sexually safe at school and in school programs. Yeah, there was a great moment. It didn't quite like you couldn't sort of tell who was saying it in the police interview where one of the superintendents, the superintendent was in the room, but you couldn't see him. And he's like, we might have a Title IX problem. (laughs) I'm like, you think? (laughs) Um, It sort of didn't, it was a little unclear who was saying it. And then we'd have to go into Title IX to explain it. But I'm sure if someone wanted to dig around, noticing just how much money is poured into a sport that has no female equivalent and how many coaches are employed and how many students get to play and how, you know, as as my editor put it, when the horse breathes fire, she's like, well, there goes the theater budget. I mean, so when you get a touchdown, their stadium is a multi-million dollar stadium. And it's like, well, where is there a yearbook? And, yeah, I'm sure there are. But in terms of programs and equity and, and where the financials go, I'm sure there's issues in there. But folks... The the football elite, I spoke a lot with the coach. I spent time getting to know him and understanding the pressures he was under and trying to help the boys who have very little opportunity in that town get out. 
So he's in a tough situation. There's no jobs. If you're African-American, there's definitely no jobs for you. So he's trying to like get them out safely. And I really respect and admire that. And I saw him doing that. Um, but the boosters, I couldn't really talk to. I would just sort of observe. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably worth looking into. I was wondering if you had gone much into what would pre, uh, I guess, um, be the precedence for a lot of this rape culture, which is the alcohol culture. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, the Brett Brett Turner and Stan, that was a big this, and Brett Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. (laughs) I know. Thanks. I Thanks for bringing Brett, old Brett, in. Um, I usually try to. Um, I did last night, but uh, we, he's always welcome in a conversation about rape and rape culture. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing about Brett Kavanaugh that I found so fascinating also is the, which is not related to alcohol, but more about the social media. So everyone said, oh, you know, this case. And then you're like, well, let's look at the yearbook page where Brett Kavanaugh and his buddies are shaming someone in their yearbook, they're slut shaming someone in the yearbook. So it's like the behavior is exactly the same. It's just the medium has, has shifted. Um, when we talk about sexual assault, I, um, I want to acknowledge that often alcohol can be used by perpetrators to enable a victim being incapacitated while they stay sober. Um, but I think sometimes the conversation gets a little blurred and, oh, well, alcohol is what did it. It's like, no, no, no. You know, um, we – I like to be really clear about, you know, other people engage and drink and don't commit sexual assault, right? So I'll have a couple beers and not go out and do that. So let's not blame alcohol. Um, you know, and there's also talk that a lot of women are drugged and th- those drugs disappear in the bloodstream really quickly. Um, and there's talk that maybe that's what happened in this story. Thank you. Um, I used to live in Paris, and there's good Samaritan laws there where if you're a bystander to a medical incident, you're obliged to stay there and do what you can to help um, whoever, if it's a car crash or just somebody having a stroke or a heart attack or something. And I think, like, would that I'm, – I'm definitely not, you know, thinking our country needs more litigation and more laws, but in a way, if people don't have common sense and they're not going to stand up and help – is that a way to emphasize to our fellow humans that this is your duty? Mm-hmm. You're witnessing something that's a crime and you need to help this person um, extract them from the situation if you can safely or at least go off to the side and call somebody for some help. Yeah, I love that question. I think it's really important. And there are um, there are a few law professors at Stanford working on it. There's a network of attorneys. There's someone at Harvard. There's a network of really feminist male and female lawyers looking into um, Good Samaritan laws and what we can try to push. Um, I think in Ohio, there might be a stronger obligation, which is why um, a judge, she's now a judge, but it was a prosecutor, Marianne Hemeter, was able to pressure the three boys to give testimony. So they were the eyewitnesses in the case, and they're what helped get the conviction. And I think she was able to push them because of those laws. Like, well, you have an obligation. So I'm going to let that slide if you testify against your two pals, which they did. So it gave her some wiggle room in the, in the case. I think it's really important. And you're, you know, the flip side, you talk to other attorneys who say, oh man, that would just tie us up in litigation, et cetera, et cetera. But if we are not getting that education in class, yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, but yeah, you're right. If like, if, if we're not obliged to help, we need to be forced to be obliged to help. You know, that's the accountability piece. So, yeah. I, uh, noticed my former high school, uh, again, back in Green Bay, um, <laughs> They occasionally will post stuff about all kinds of things in the, in the, uh, happening in the school, but one of was the uh, kicker on the team, their football team, who is a girl. Do you think that kind of integrate g- gender integration on football teams, A, is a good thing, B, can help change some of this, at least on the sports side? Oh, absolutely. And that's great. I think uh, this idea, you know, there's this great uh, former NFL player, Don McPherson, who just published this book, Throw Like a Girl, who's really critiquing that culture. If you're throwing good, then you should be able to play on the team. If you're the strongest kicker, go for it. Yeah. I mean, there's, and we're all acculturated. I was an athlete and my dad would say stuff like throw like a girl, even though he's very supportive of what I did. And it's like, we're, you know, that's changing, Mm -hmm. but absolutely we see you know, but yeah, I mean, women athletes are still paid less. Look at our amazing global soccer, soccer champs, right? And it's like, we need the laws, we need the money, we need the integration. We just need all of those pieces to come together. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? I was going to add to that in which if you, this is my wish, that if the entire world uh, did its education and was more accepting of smashing the social construct of gender identity and sexual orientation um you you know being a member of the lgbtq community i do think that that would reduce a lot of gender-based violence yeah any other questions um here in the bay area i've noticed that um there are several schools who have decided against continuing their football and instead going to lacrosse and the right except that there are female and male mm-hmm. lacrosse teams in those schools mm. and part of the thinking is that it takes away some of that male exclusivity yeah and the focus for mm-hmm. all of the money going towards one sport and i it's new, so I uh-huh. think we don't really know what is going to happen culturally with that. Mm-hmm. So I'm just—it's an observation, but the but the intentionality mm-hmm. is to disable some of that negative energy or whatever you want to call it from continuing. Yeah, I mean, also football is super dangerous for brain trauma. Yes, it is. It's really dangerous. I mean, at some point, that's going to shift, mm-hmm. and probably 10, 20 years. I mean, it's just like. 35-year-old men with massive brain damage. It's really, really nuts. Um, I mean, I feel like another fantastic move, at least on the college level, would be to abolish fraternities. That was one of the things I wanted to say. I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were about. Oh, my God. Get rid of them. Goodbye. Yeah. But those all have ties, right? So we wonder about Brock Turner's judge. And, well, how did – who is he – you know, there's like a network of male judges – so we can change the laws and we've got great laws and we have amazing attorneys. We got to work on the juries. We've got this education. Let's educate the populace so they can be on the juries and like, oh man, look at the judges. And some of those judges go to elite institutions and we're part of fraternities that are connected to the, you know, the Kavanaugh's, no, the Brock Turner judges, they all are like part of the same clubs. So we have to just see those networks and, you know, fraternities create allegiances, um, 
that go on and on and on and deep and there's lots of money. So the schools are invested in them. The other dangerous thing about them is that sororities are not allowed to have alcohol at their parties because a collection of that many women in one space, I think is a brothel <laughs> by a lot of antiquated <laughs> law, right? So when you're in college and you want to have a party and you want to just, I mean, I party with seltzer myself, but uh, college students don't, so they have to go to the fraternities because the the girls' houses can't have alcohol. That's so inherently dangerous and infantilizing. Um, so for many reasons, I think fraternities need to go. I mean, with the liability and the deaths and the hazings and the assaults, I mean, they're, they're nightmarish. Um, and maybe more women football players or more lacrosse and, you know, all of it can help. As we wind down, you know, and, and again, thank you for this film and thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, you're and certainly th- throughout the entire hour, there's a lot of work. There's so much that we all could be doing. Um, we heard that there's there are things that we could be doing politically, we could be doing legally, but most importantly, importantly, we need to be changing, you know, the the culture and. My my last couple of questions really come down to the future of our our nation, our country, as we speak. Unfortunately, you know the the person with the highest power is not a feminist, right? Um, right. <laughs> uh, and and yeah. I would have to say that I think that if we're going to make some big grant changes. That we would have to see a female president in office, or I mean, a femi- yes, a feminist. But I mean, if we have the chance yeah. to elect the first, you know, woman president in the United States of America, uh, I think Cheney. that there's a, what's that? What if it's Liz Cheney? Well, she's Somewhat. not. She's she's not running, but I'm saying. Uh, but I guess the, with the current candidates, is, yeah, yeah, and and so I just wanted to to hear your thoughts because I heard this statement made that someone said this is so great that we have an LGBTQ candidate, um, we have people of color running, but I think to save our nation, we really need to to elect a f- female president for the first time. I feel like we need to elect an intersectional feminist for the first time. You know, I'm like so wary of the female because look at Christian Nielsen, look at Ivanka, look at Betsy DeVos, look at Kellyanne Conway. You know, I'm a, I, when I look at Betsy DeVos, I'm like, oh, is that what I'm going to look like in 20 years? Like, I look like her, you know, it's like, God, oh, it really depends. Um, you know, uh, we've got to be really careful about the women. I mean, they are part of this administration. Um, I don't know if it's their belief system or if it's money, whatever it is. So we need, you know, um, yeah, it would be interesting as a first. Uh, the fact that we haven't had a woman in leadership is ridiculous. Actually, mm-hmm. many countries in Europe have many countries in Latin America have had. And it's like a joke that we that it's so shocking that we would even imagine a, a woman in leadership. It's like, how far behind are we? I feel like we're pretty elect, far behind. Elect, we're always elect, kidding ourselves and we're number one, but so, some would argue the woman in charge in Washington is Nancy Pelosi. So um, I, I, I just have a question as you've been going around and, and talking to audiences and as you've certainly must've been getting a lot of feedback on this film from people who've seen it across the country, what sort of reaction are you getting or is it, an outpouring of, oh, wow, what should, what can be done? Do you get a lot of negative feedback? I mean, really? I yeah. really would have expected more. No, I think people we, – we've gotten so much um, positive feedback in terms of like, wow, um, I recognize this in my own town. I recognize this in my own community. Mm-hmm. Um, and really – 
I designed this film to reach men and reach men and boys. And we, it's been incredible. A lot of our reviews, um, the critics, I feel like four years ago, it might not have hit in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, and now Anthony Lane, um, variety male reviewers saying, Whoa, one, one critic related it to frat culture, Brett Kavanaugh, all the stuff that's not in the movie. But I think, I think in my optimist hat on, you know, men are ready to see themselves both as the problem and then as the solution. So we're really trying to focus on helping with the film. We have educational toolkits. We have partnership opportunities. Um, we're doing campaigns with middle schools and high schools to really empower men to have this tool, like bring this film, bring it to your team. I, you know, Here's a study guide. Just walk through it. Let's critique masculinity. Let's critique victim blaming. It's pretty simple. Like All the scenes are constructed both to tell the story, but also to give you those teachable moments. Um, so so, you know, there's there's been some splitting hairs. I got in this big fight and then I got really mad with this person who's like, wow, that rape isn't that bad. And I was like, we are not going to split hairs. You're going to learn the law and you're going to fix yourself and you're going to get out of my timeline. Like... <laughs> There, there is the, the hope. So very last question. If uh, those who are listening today, especially if you're a feminist ally, male ally, feminist, uh, reach out to Nancy, how can we do that? Oh, please, please reach out. Um, our website with all the info about the film and screenings is uh, rollredrollfilm.com and our socials are rollredrolldoc. Um, and I am at Fancy Nancy NYC. So you guys can all find me there. It's one of my favorite Twitter handles. <laughs> it's my old, yeah, yeah. So I was gonna, yeah. So anyway, I'm very mature and you all can find me there. Uh, and we'd love to, you know, keep in touch with listeners and, and folks about getting the film out and helping to change the world. We would be remiss without asking you the obvious question everyone asks the filmmaker. Are you working on something else next? I am. Can you tell us anything about it? I don't know. It's um, a rom-com a... starring. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, am I working on anything rom-com-ish? I am. I have uh, a few films in development. Okay. And they're all top secret, but I am working on a book. Actually, that's a deeper dive sort of behind the scenes on what it was like to investigate this case as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, all the stuff we couldn't put in the film. Um, we're going to be publishing a book about it. So a creative nonfiction mm. and then film stuff. Yeah, it's a little secret for now. Mm. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I thought she was going to say, well, yes, the next documentary is all about Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nancy, thank you. Fine. Thank you so much for being here at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for thank the you. film and, and putting it out there. Even though it's 2019, this case happened in 2012, it did bring up all the, you know, the questions, the emotions, and... Um, the education, you know, that we really need and then a path forward. And that's what I love about it. And thank you to our audience for being here at the Commonwealth Club for the program. We have some great stuff coming up. So for the full listing, you can head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.